What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Welcome to Intelligence Squared. Today we're hearing from journalist, author and head of external consultancies at the Lenny Henry Centre for Media Diversity, Marcus Ryder. Marcus is the co-editor of the recently published book, Black British Lives Matter. And here's Manveen Rana with more. In the summer of 2020, the killing of George Floyd at the hands of police officers in Minneapolis, America, unleashed a furious storm of anger that took hold in America and rapidly spread across the world. Surely, in 2020, it shouldn't have needed to be said. But three words rang out in protests all over the world. Black Lives Matter. Since then, we've seen statues being torn down, footballers taking the knee, and a reinvigorated commitment from some organisations to talk about making sure that discrimination has no place in modern society and that black voices are truly heard. Has the movement changed the world? What difference did it make in Britain? Black British Lives Matter is a new anthology of essays collecting the views of prominent black Britons discussing fields ranging from literature to the law. Contributors range from the novelist Kit Duval to the architect Sir David Adjaye, the politician Dawn Butler to the campaigner Baroness Doreen Lawrence. The collection was co-curated by Sir Lenny Henry, the renowned comedian, writer and campaigner, and Marcus Ryder who after 25 years in the TV industry has recently been appointed Chair of RADA, the UK's leading drama school, and was previously Chair of the Royal Television Society's Diversity Committee and Head of BBC Scotland Current Affairs. Marcus joins us now to tell us about the book. Welcome to Intelligence Squared, Marcus. Um, I wanted to start really by asking you, this book, how did it come about and what was it that prompted you to put it together? What need were you trying to fill? It came about in the summer of 2020. So I was at home watching the the demonstrations and the global movement that was, you know, absolutely everywhere. You couldn't turn on your radio, television, um, go onto the internet, etc. without seeing it. And uh, we'd just finished Access All Areas. Lenny and I had just finished another book called Access All Areas. And so I spoke to Lenny saying, the problem, or not the problem, one of the issues of Black Lives Matter is that we are sometimes, the debate finishes with the discrimination against us. So Black Lives Matter is a, is a brilliant and such a succinct call for racial equality and racial justice. But... In that call, often we frame it in terms of how our lives aren't valued, how they don't matter. And so what we wanted to do 
was to ensure that... Is that how it felt? Yeah, it, sometimes it feels that there was um, piece after piece with regards to the the racism that we face, the inequalities that, that we have, and that's really important. So I don't want to try and pretend that we do not want to talk about the racism. It's, it's vitally important that we address that. But at the same time, we should not let our lives be defined by the bigotry that attempts to confine it. You know, and so our lives are far more important, our scope of what we do and the importance of our lives are not just a reaction to racism. You know, my black life is a life which experiences racism, but it experiences joy, frustration. I contribute to, in BBC Scotland, news and current affairs. David Ajay's, for example, black identity contributes to his architecture. You know, it's his architecture, he has so much more. His black identity is so much more than the tale of, oh, my God, I didn't get the commission because I was black. That's how it sometimes felt with regards to um, uh, Black Lives Matter framing, you know. So David Ajay can speak very eloquently about the racism which he faces and has overcome and continues to face and continues attempts to overcome. But he can also talk very eloquently as to how his black British identity shapes and forms his architecture and his outlook on life. And so we wanted to make sure that that latter part was also covered. And so that's why we say black British lives matter, not just in terms of the racism we face, but in terms of the entire 360 degrees of our identity. Do you think enough has been done to recognise in the past the cultural place of, of a black British identity that it's sort of been, you know, collated in sort of pieces of literature or, or bits of film that have had enough attention. Is that one of the things you're addressing here? Because in a way, you know, it's, it's gone on for so long. Windrush sort of came and assimilated such a long time ago that it hasn't always, people haven't always sort of noticed just how much black lives contribute to greater British society. The short answer is no. Our contribution is, is not fully recognised. Again, invariably, when it comes to Black History Month, we're hearing stories, and they are very important stories. I don't want to try and undermine the importance of stories of us overcoming racism, mm. you know, but invariably our stories are framed as such. Whereas the David Olasoga essay, for example, he speaks how his black British identity means that he is seeing the world through a black British lens, and that informs the way he approaches history. And not just quote-unquote black history, but how his framing makes him view his analysis of World War II differently, how his framing informs every aspect of how he looks at history. And so it's really making sure that we have a different perspective. So what's interesting, you, you said at the, the start that I've recently taken on the position of chair of RADA. And so I sat in on a, a drama class about two weeks ago. How was that? And Oh, it's great. <laughs> it's, it's such a highlight of the role when, when I'm not having to go through the minutes of the last council meeting and everything. You know, it's, it's, it's an absolute joy to <laughs> interact with the students and stuff. Yeah, so, yeah, it's brilliant. But they were going through, I'm trying to remember which playwright it was. It was a Russian playwright. Anyway, so they were going through that. And the drama teacher was talking about gender and how the play is traditionally viewed through a male gaze, hmm. you know. Um, and then they were talking about what would the female gaze look like and how, would, how might this differ from the traditional male gaze of interpreting this play. And that was wonderful. 
you know. And uh, but I want to also make sure that we look through what does the black British gaze look like. So just as we can look through a female gaze and not think that it has to be within the framework of sexism, mm. we should be able to look through a black British gaze. And it doesn't have to necessarily be through the framework of racism. And tell us, tell us a, a bit about that. I mean, what, what is um, what is the sort of the Black British gaze effectively? You know, you mentioned, for example, looking at history from, from that perspective, looking at World War Two, and then analysing it from that perspective. I mean, what? How does it change? Talk us through the World War example, perhaps, as a as a way of showing us, you know, how, how the perspective is different. You see different connections. So David Olasoga, for example, he gives the example of you see different connections with regards to because he spent a lot of his childhood in Scotland. So he says that he now sees Scotland differently because he used to enjoy Scottish toffee. And then when you realise that Scotland played such a instrumental role in the slave trade, and if you're talking about the Caribbean, you're then really talking about sugar plantations, you then look at Scotland's sweet tooth, it consumes per capita some insane amounts of sugar. And you look at that quite differently when you actually... That's just an iron brew. (laughs) But you do look at the sugar consumption quite differently. And then you look at the, for example, once you then know about Scotland's connection with the slave trade, you then look at things such as Bob Marley and the Whalers and all of... You know, you've got Bob Marley, you've got Peter Tosh, and they all have Scottish surnames. So there's a massive Scottish link. And so then you actually view That's culture so differently. And what are, the, what are the cultural links? And so then you're viewing the world differently, even from the kind of different music you're listening to, to the different food you're eating. And Lenny tells a story of he was asked to open a event many years ago in the black country. So he's holding a black country flag. And the flag that he was holding that was celebrating, I can't remember which aspect of the black country, it's in the book, so read the book, has got chains because they're famous for making chains because they were, it was a steel making part of the world. And he's holding that and it suddenly dawns on him. These are the chains that held my ancestors who were slaves. I am holding a flag which tangentially is celebrating the very shackles which enslaved me, you know. And so you view the flag differently. You know, that's not to say that you burn the flag or that you have to topple a statue. You're just viewing the different connections differently. And so you're viewing the world differently. And this book is such a rich tapestry of different voices. And I think, again, you know, you're right, it sort of celebrates how well black Britons have done. For you, putting it together, what were the things that came out of it that most surprised you? Well, most surprised me, and I and I almost hesitate when you say what is a black British lens, mm. was that it's 19 essays, and they're all very different. And I was saying this to, to Lenny the other day, and Lenny goes, why does this surprise you? We are all different people. Mm. And I know that in theory, but when you read the essays in succession, you realise that there is no single black British identity. It really illustrates the heterogeneity of our perspectives and the commonality. So certain things which I thought, certain essays which I thought were going to be very similar weren't. And then other essays which I didn't think were going to have the same connections are very similar. So for example, Doreen Lawrence, it was amazing with her contributing an essay. I was like so flattered that she agreed. And so she contributes an essay on Black British Mothers Matter, hmm. which I'll, I'll talk about that. It's, it's, it's a fantastic essay. Tell us a bit about that. 
Well, what she's basically saying is, I am a mother. And what has happened, and I know that's like it's such an obvious statement of fact, but she's illustrating or she tries to push back against the fact that her humanity has often been dismissed and she has become a an avatar, a campaigner. And so the whole essay is basically her reclaiming her humanity. And she does that through the links that black people and other people, the universal links that people feel through parenthood and motherhood. And so it's a reclaiming of her humanity and it's reclaiming the humanity of the victims of racial violence and it's reclaiming the humanity of um, the parents of these victims who you often see for their kind of 15 seconds of fame as fitting some kind of media or racial trope of the grieving mother or the, yeah. you know, um, the brave father or the campaign or whatever. And she goes, we are people, we are 300, we, our identities, I go to bed. I, you know, so the quote at the start of her essay, I found just so powerful. And I think I'm going to misquote it now. I wish I should have had the book in front of me, but she says, I don't cry in public. I fight in public, but make no mistake about it. I do cry. And basically, the essay is an expansion of that, of like, I have a public face, which you see, and I don't always show you my private face, but make no mistake about it. I'm a human being who cries, you know, and she sums it up in that quote so, so beautifully. So yeah, it's a, it's a really powerful. And then what's also incredibly powerful in that essay is that there's certain things that I hadn't realized, such as the use of technology historically in, in pushing equality and anti-racist agendas. And so you've got the, obviously people talk now about the fact there's so many more mobile phones and people are able to, to record this. And if we didn't have the mobile phone footage of George Floyd, yeah. Obviously, George Floyd would have been another statistic. There is no doubt that it's the mobile phone footage. But similarly, do you know the story of Emmett Tull? So Emmett Tull was killed by a, um, a racist mob. He was lynched. This was in, in the South in the, I think, I'm going to get it slightly wrong, but I think it was the 1950s. And uh, he, was a, he was a cause celeb. He was the George Floyd of his day, right, in terms of galvanizing the, the civil rights movement. Yeah. Right. In America and later and globally. All right. So the, the, the links between his case and George Floyd's case are very, very clear. But the reason his case, Emmett's case, became such a cause celeb was because his mother decided to photograph the open casket. Ah. And so photography at that point and the ability to to distribute photography through newspapers at that point hadn't been utilized in that way previously. Hmm. And I just hadn't thought of that. And all of a sudden it comes out in Doreen's essay because she's talking about the case of strong mothers. So in this case, she, she, does, she herself doesn't directly talk about technology. She's talking about how instrumental the mother was in pushing this case forward, which led to and the importance of black mothers in achieving racial justice. So she's talking about that. But when you're reading it, you're thinking, wow, there's different technological things that occur. Yeah. In a way, I suppose it's a bit like the Arab Spring, which probably wouldn't have happened without mobile phones. Similarly, yeah. Black Lives Matter wouldn't have gone global in the way it did if it wasn't for people on social media 
communicating and also sort of, you know, you, you'd get hashtags, you get people sharing their experiences. It, that's, it sort of became a really powerful moment. Absolutely. So people talk about that. And then, but what they don't talk about is the fact that photography or film, you know, if you're talking about the Vietnam War, photography was similarly a game changing piece of technology. You know, and uh, these game changing pieces of technology keep coming and they change the the discourse um, of the debate. And Marcus, with the book, I'm really interested in the idea of, of the British black lens and how it applies to so many different fields. I just wondered, does it mean that whether you're a historian or an artist, do you end up bringing some of the political to your to your work, to, to, to what you do? So Kwame Kwerimar has a has a perspective on this, which I think is quite unique, or not unique, but made me think, rather. And he was saying that if you are going against the status quo, that is political. And black representation in all various fields, we are so underrepresented that to actually have our perspective valued and uh, um, represented and have some agency it's by definition political, whether we want to, you know, frame it that way or not. He he feels, and I think I agree, that it's similar to if women are so underrepresented when they do get a seat at the table and they are able to articulate life through a female lens, then that by definition is political because it's going against the status quo. Similarly, I'm currently talking to you sitting in Glasgow, and if... Scottish people are denied access to proper power or agencies they would see it, then getting a seat at that table is by definition political because they're coming with a different perspective and will have different needs and different desires. And with that in mind, I guess I'd, I'd be really interested to hear about your own personal experience. You know, you've been in, in such an important industry for so long. You've helped to shape the way institutions like the BBC in the past have sort of done programming. Uh, but also, you know, through the Royal Television Society, you've sort of had a much bigger impact. Tell us a bit about your experiences. I mean, firstly, was it hard for you starting up? And, you know, obviously there's overt racism, but there's also sort of the idea of if it is quite political to be bringing a black British lens to any problem to, to, to the job that you're doing. Was that difficult? You know, was it welcomed always? Um, what sort of experiences have you had? So I would say that um, experiences of, of overt racism are few and, mm. and far between. You know, the, the media is a relative, especially the BBC, is a liberal institution with a, with a small L. And so, you know, there are some notable exceptions and they're often quite famous exceptions, but I'm not receiving overt racism. No one's calling me a name or, or anything like that. You know, I think what often happens is the way that issues are framed can be in the interest of, you know, certain groups in power. And that invariably means white people in power, just the way the debates are, are framed. So, for example, more recently, what, what's interesting is journalists at the BBC were not allowed to, and still are, as far as I'm aware, still are not allowed to go on any Black Lives Matter protests because they were seen as being political and therefore compromising their objectivity and their impartiality. Okay. At the same time, those new guidelines um, or interpretation of the guidelines came out there was a little media kerfuffle about 
whether that meant that BBC journalists should be allowed to go on pride marches. Um, mm. And the BBC quickly clarified that BBC journalists should be allowed to go on pride marches, but there'll be some aspects which are directly related to policy, in particular when it comes to trans, that they um, journalists should not be talking about particular policies which are seen as controversial, right? And what was interesting for, for me is that why didn't the BBC take the same nuanced approach when it comes to Black Lives Matter? Black so lives, is that still a rule? Is mm-hmm, it a blanket yeah. rule? You can't go on a Black Lives Matter protest or a march or anything? Correct. If you work for the BBC? I don't know if, it, if you work for the BBC. I, it might be if you're a journalist or work in news. So I'm not, I'm not sure if it's blanket rule for all employees. It might just be within the news division. And have you spoken to the BBC about that? Not publicly. <laughs> I, have, I have spoken to people in the BBC privately about it. Yeah. And so, as I said, what's, what's interesting for me is that there are aspects of Black Lives Matter which directly relate to government policy. And so things like defund the police. And so I can completely understand that it would be difficult for um, journalists to be seen as being impartial if they are commenting directly on issues such as defund the police. But what was interesting for me was the fact that the BBC were able to take that nuanced approach when it came to pride marches, recognising that pride in and of itself was a universal, um, non-controversial issue. And Black Lives Matter, I think the idea that Black Lives Matter, if you take it at its most basic, is non-controversial. But that doesn't mean that there aren't some controversial policy elements Um, or policy asks from elements within those movements. Completely understand that. So, but you, you take a nuanced approach, you know? And so what's interesting for me is if there are people that understand that nuance for pride, why they are being listened to, or are they sitting around the table and being listened to? And if there were those people, those black people or people who understood Black Lives Matter around the top table for the BBC, Either they didn't really understand the issues and the nuance around Black Lives Matter, or they weren't being listened to. You know, so it's how do we make sure that black peoples and that black lens and that black perspective is is listened to? Because I don't think it's that complicated, to be honest with you. Do you think in a way with Black Lives Matter, has it been quite harmful to people who are just trying to, to have you know, racism looked at again, to have that bigger conversation. Do you think the fact that it's associated with now a political movement, which is, you know, Marxist, wants to defund the police, has that been quite damaging? So I keep just quoting all the people in the essay. So David Olasoga addresses this absolutely beautifully. And uh, that's with regards to knowing your history. And so he cites the example of black people, black African-American GIs coming back from World War One and uh, demanding equality, right? Saying that we fought for America, therefore we should ha- have equality at home. And there was a pushback against that saying, no, 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 you have been influenced and uh, your whole idea have been, has been influenced by some uh, um, Russian commie, um, communist madness, you know, and so you're not being properly American. And this is a, you've, you've misunderstood African-American person. You're not intellectually sophisticated enough, African-American person. And that movement was discredited as being a, a European import, 
you know, with um, uh, communist and Marxist leanings that the black people championing it were, were too naive to properly understand um, and had been hoodwinked. And similarly, I think that, you know, with Black Lives Matter, you see massive parallels with that. Of course, there's going to be some policy demands. There's going to be policy demands for any movement that I agree with and some policy demands that I don't agree with. But that doesn't mean you then throw the baby out with the bathwater. And then you need to look at who is trying to throw the baby out with the bathwater. Who are the people that are trying to discredit it? So I, as a rule, try and make sure that we do not blame the victims for their victimhood. But we actually look at the people that are trying to discredit it. And we keep our eye on, keep our eye on the prize and make sure that we're fully aware of whose interests Black Lives Matter not succeeding interests, um, you know, whose interests that, you know, work by it not succeeding. Because, you know, it is something we've heard often from politicians, people who claimed that was the reason they didn't want footballers to take the knee because it's a political movement. Um, and, you know, as you cited the example of the BBC, for example, I mean, it, would it be almost worth sort of decoupling the political movement to the slogan, which represents so much more? I don't think that there is an issue with with it being coupled or decoupled, mm. to be honest with you. You know, if you if you go on the marches, there are lots of people who went on the marches. There are lots of people who um, write in um, contributors to the book who I didn't ask them, but I doubt they have a view. And if they do have a view, it will be very varied as to what they think about defunding the police. For example, there is an essay by... Um, Nels Abbey. And I am pretty sure that he is not a socialist or definitely not a Marxist. In he writes about black business, black British business matters. I don't know that for certain, but I suspect that where he's coming from. But he has no problem. And so you're thinking, who does have a problem and who wants to make sure that those links discredit the, um, uh, the very idea of Black Lives Matter. So I'm not so sure that if you try to decouple it, there wouldn't be something else that came along. You know, if you try to decouple... The people that were complaining about the English footballers taking the knee, I don't think that they had really looked into the issues of defund the police, or the policy analysis of that. I doubt that very much. You know, the, the people that were booing on the terraces when the, when the footballers were taking the knee. So I'm not so sure that we need to get too wrapped up in in thinking that, oh, if only we didn't talk about defund the police, or if only we didn't talk about this policy or that policy, then Black Lives Matter would have been fully supported by by the masses or whatever. You know, so um, I'm I'm not so sure that's a correct approach. And Marcus, um, you you mentioned the BBC and its approach to to Black Lives Matter for its employees, certainly. Um, I wanted to also just hear from you a little bit about the book that you wrote just just before this compilation, um, Access All Areas. Tell us a bit about that as a as a manifesto for for change. So, with Access All Areas, again written with with Lenny, it has a narrative thread of um, how Lenny and I um, met and I think it's about seven years of campaigning, about seven years of campaigning for better representation, better diversity, better inclusion in the media industry. And so it charts our journey and our attempt to do that from speaking at, at BAFTA to speaking in Parliament to going to Downing Street 
etc cetera, etc cetera. so that's the kind of narrative arc and finishes with us um, setting up the Seleni Henry Center for media diversity so that we can always analyze and have a foundation for analyzing diversity and inclusion in, in the media so that's the narrative arc but the overall message that we wanted to get across was to reframe the debate around diversity and inclusion and that's the idea that diversity inclusion is a minority issue and what we showed with it is that it is a majority issue um i haven't got the stats because i wrote it it was published almost a year ago so I'm, the stats are a little <laughs> fuzzy but um, there was an amazing stat in it which was uh, about the 29.5% of the uk's population which is actually made up of white heterosexual able bodied men Oh, yes. Thank you. That is correct. <laughs> and I mean, talk us through that, because I think I think most people, when they hear that statistic, are quite surprised. Yeah, so if, if you think of, but I'll give you a, a, a bigger statistic in a second, or a more shocking one for me. Yeah, so only 29.5% of the, of the UK population is white, non-disabled, um, heterosexual, you know. And when you think about that, that means that for every white, non-disabled, heterosexual man, sorry, man, that, that you see, you should see at least two women or two, a woman and a black person or a black person and a disabled person or a mixture of, um, or a gay person and a, a woman or a mixture of, of intersectionality of, of that, right? And you don't even vaguely see that. And so you reframe it and you just realize just how distorted our image is of the world, you know. And so then the other stat that follows on from that is that I worked in Scotland for, for eight years. Lenny's originally from um, Dudley from the, from the Midlands. And so there's also the issue of regional diversity, because so much of what we look at is, um, and when we look at positions of power, is based around London. And so if you Look at how many people are white, non-disabled, heterosexual, male, living in and around London, right? You get the crazy statistic, or well, I think it's crazy anyway, of 3.1%. Just 3.1% of the population is white, non-disabled, heterosexual, male, living in and around London, right? That's genuinely very surprising. I know, I, I, I mean, so much so that we... Um, it seems so unlikely. In the original... This was told to us by the somebody who works in a, in a museum who looks at immigration, and uh, we thought, that can't be right. <laughs> Even though she broke down the figures and she was an economist, she'd, in a previous life she'd been an economist for the Treasury, we're like, that can't be right. right? And she gave us a stat, something like 36 we're like, you know, that's mad. So then we went to the ONS and the ONS were like, yeah, I'm afraid she got it wrong. And it's 3.1%. And we're like, my goodness. You know? <laughs> that wasn't so, the part you were surprised yeah, by. Yes. Exactly. Wow. Um, and, and that's when you just realize that when you're watching television, when you look at your, your courtrooms, when you look at every, almost every aspect of life. And what was really nice is that I was talking to a Channel 4 executive and she said that she started doing the counting because she was thinking, she was walking into meetings and she was saying every white, heterosexual, non-disabled man I see who's from London, there should be 30-odd non-people that can't fit that description. You know, for everyone, there should be 30 if, if Channel 4 is being representative. Mm. And she was like, it doesn't come close. And she wasn't just talking about Channel 4, just so I don't point the finger at Channel 4, or similarly, I don't want to just point the finger at BBC or any, any broadcaster. 
for every walk of life. I talk to my brother, who's a who's a lawyer, you know, and he's walking into meetings all the time with barristers. And yeah, we're, we're worried. At, Lenny and I were worried at one point that we we're going to sound like some kind of you know labour slogan of for the many. I can't remember what the Corbyn slogan was because <laughs> we were saying, "Are you part of the ninety seven percent? Are you part of the ninety six point nine percent?" Because we are. The, obviously, yeah. I was about to say the vast majority of us are. Yeah, 96.9% of us are. <laughs> turns you out. Know. Yeah, it turns out. If you see diversity as a minority issue, then every time you see the disabled person, you're thinking, oh, there's a, another one of the minority that we're seeing. Every time you see an Asian person, you're saying, oh, I'm, it's, it's an overrepresentation of that minority. You know, And so we're saying... Let's not think of it as the minority. Let's think of it as the majority when we see them, you know. And so in many ways, we were trying to address the idea of an overrepresentation of the minority. If you view diversity as a minority issue, then what you're looking at every time you see that black person is, or are we, are we up to the 14% BAME target now? Are we up to the 12% disability target now or whatever it is? Whereas when you frame it as the majority, you don't see it. You, you, you view it through different eyes. And I hadn't really thought of it as being a reaction. But yeah, in some ways, it's a reaction to that kind of why is there another black person in my Christmas advert? And what do you make of, of the culture war? I mean, you've spent a couple of decades now trying to get the media, for, in particular, to be more diverse. And I know it's probably been slow going, but there has sort of been a gradual progression. Does it feel like that might be sort of set into reverse, given a lot of the rhetoric we're hearing now? So I would question the, the progress, I guess, um, because there has been progress in certain areas, such as certain elements of on-screen representation, right? So you do get, you know, Idris Elba in, in Luther. You do get Sandra Oh in, in Killing Eve, you know, and that's wonderful. But one, there's, there's two things. I'm going to talk about on-screen representation and then I'm going to talk about behind-the-camera representation. So with the on-screen representation, the thing about Sandra Oh in Killing Eve, the thing about Luther, and people have pointed this out before, is there's a real dearth of, and that you can look at, you can see lots of examples of quote unquote positive individuals. But these positive individuals invariably dwell in functioning white worlds, right? Whereas the ethnic communities are seen as and are still portrayed as as dysfunctional. So I'll, I'll use Sandra O oh, because I I'm, and I say this as somebody who loves Killing Eve. I think it's one of the best programs out there. So, you know, you can criticize things that you still love. But with, with Killing Eve, there was almost no reference at all to Sandra O's oh Korean heritage, right? And she is, for the most part, you know, in a functioning white world. Her employer is, and her bosses are, are white. Um, her husband, without spoiler alert, something happens to her husband, but her husband is white. So she's living in a functioning white world. It's only when everything goes wrong in her life, where she loses her job. Don't worry, people, something else happens. So I'm not completely spoiling it for you. I haven't seen it. Where something goes wrong in her marriage, where something goes wrong in her work, and everything's gone wrong. But you finally see her in a Korean community. And at that point, she is taking the most stereotypical of roles. She is working in a Korean restaurant, in a kitchen, right? And the message that that sends out is, yes, you can be a positive Korean person who can 
you know, be an amazing superhero, can kill people, can kill who you like, you can kiss who you like, you can have sex with who you like, which she does, and she can, you know, whatever, whatever, whatever. But as long as you do it within a white framework. And when everything goes wrong, that's when you go back to your ethnic community, you know, and ethnic communities are still portrayed as, you know, if you're talking about Indian subcontinent, Asian communities, they're still portrayed as the communities have got problems. The communities are still portrayed as places of forced marriages or potential terrorists, etc. Black communities are still portrayed as places where there is infested with drugs, you know, and gangsters and etc, etc. So the progress that we talk about in for on screen is invariably about individual atomized progress, mm. right? Whereas the communities, black communities, Korean communities, Indian communities, etc., are still seen as dysfunctional. And so I think that's the next um, diversity battlefield, which is why, in a funny way, um, and I just, you know, mentioned it in passing, you know, the Sainsbury's advert of last year, or where they had a black family celebrating Christmas was so powerful because what that advert said was black people, you can actually have fun. Black people have fun. Black people have nice lives. Black people enjoy themselves. And you know what? They don't need white people to do that. That doesn't mean white people necessarily stop them having nice lives or that they couldn't, that you couldn't have a nice life and have joy within a interracial family. Not saying that at all, but black people and a black community and it was a functioning family and you so rarely see a functioning happy family that is not in need of rescuing or or what have you so yeah, I mean, I it's, think it's remarkable that, to remember an ad from last year as being such an exception yeah and, and that's why it resonated with so many people and it's also why it resonated with and so many people and, so, and the quality of that is so many people pushed against it because what that advertisement was saying but what that advertisement did is that it centered black people. And in a way, going right back to um, Black British Lives Matter, what we're trying to do is center the black experience, center black people. Why are black people so important? And, and how do we center black people when it comes to AI? How do we center the black experience and make sure that black people are so important when it comes to the charity sector? How do we centre the black experience when it comes to et cetera, et cetera? On that, um, it's not strictly to do with, with the book, but I think it would be remiss of me not to ask, given that it's all over the newspapers at the moment. Um, you know, you've talked about sort of representation on screen. I can't not ask about yeah, all the rumours swirling currently about you and the BBC. Talk mm. us through what's happened. <laughs> <laughs> In your own words. In my own words. Okay. <laughs> um, so what happened was that I was approached by the BBC about a possible job. And it was to do with Radio 1 and the Asian Network. And I think um, One Extra's move from London to, to Birmingham. Because I've got a, a history of being able to establish uh, regional diversity hubs, which is what I did in Scotland, you know, even if I say so myself, I'm, I'm a relatively, there's a few people with that skill set um, and I'm one of them. So it doesn't come as a massive shock that they approached me on that. Long story short, um, they didn't give me the job and I didn't really think anything anything of it. But at, at the same time, so a few weeks later, I get phone calls from two newspapers and they say they've got this story that that I was blocked by by Tim Davey. So it's the, direct, the, director, that's general the di- director general of the BBC. I don't know the 
the truth about that. Um, but they say that they've got both newspapers say they've got it from reliable sources, um, from multiple sources. The Daily Mail print the story. Um, and then the other newspaper, along with others, then also print versions of the story. Um, the BBC have denied that that has happened, I hasten to add. So this actually goes to the heart of the diversity debate and, and being a journalist. So the BBC editorial guidelines, I love the BBC editorial guidelines. I'm not a religious person, but if I did have religious piece of text, <laughs> it would be the BBC editorial guidelines. They are, they're absolutely brilliant. And so the BBC editorial guidelines talk about the fact that what journalists are trying to achieve is due impartiality. And due impartiality is different from impartiality. It doesn't mean that you need to be objective and balanced on absolutely everything. So you do not need to be balanced and objective on uh, the right to vote. You know, we believe and BBC journalists believe in the right to vote. They believe in the principles of democracy. So having impartiality does not mean that every time that you talk mm. about democracy, that you need to have somebody else saying actually democracy is evil, you know. So due impartiality is recognizing that there are certain values that we have that we that don't need to be balanced. And so one of the aspects of due impartiality, which the outgoing Director General talked about, is that we do not need to be balanced when it comes to racism. We can be anti-racist. We are uh, our values are that racism is wrong. And so it's whether things which I have said about diversity and inclusion, whether that is due impartiality. But the impression and the fear that, or the allegation rather, that people think that the BBC denied me the job or I was blocked from having the job, is whether talking against racism is seen as compromising my objectivity. And the argument is, no, it doesn't, because it falls, that's like arguing for the right to vote. Or is diversity and anti-racism not seen an accepted norm and value that BBC journalists should have? So there's an important debate on that. Now, publicly, the BBC values and stated values side with me, you know, and I'm very careful with all the things that I tweet and whatever to make sure that they're not party political and that I do stay within, even though I'm not in the BBC. And so it shouldn't really matter that much. But I was at the BBC for almost 25 years. I find it hard to get it out of my bones. And so the stuff that I tweet, I still try and maintain the same kind of impartiality and guidelines of, of the BBC, to be honest with you. And people say, why do you do that? I just can't help it. So that's that's the debate. That's where the allegations are. Is it an apology you want? or No, I don't, I'm not looking... A change of perspective? So what is happening right now when I speak privately to employees at the BBC is they are unsure where that line is of being an objective and impartial journalist, um, especially when it comes to public pronouncements on, on social media. They think they, they can't go to Black Lives Matter marches, but can they tweet something about Black Lives Matter? For example, you know, if they tweeted pictures of the England players taking the knee, would that possibly count against um, perceptions of their objectivity and impartiality? So I think there's a very serious issue for a need for better clarity. Well, issues just, of which just for a journalists bit of need a, some kind of clarity. And just for a bit of context, I worked at the BBC for years and was part of a, a group called BBC Women, which was broadly sort of just asking for equal rights, really, and equal pay. And the moment you were a member of what was effectively just a WhatsApp group, you weren't allowed to, 
you weren't allowed to work on news about about sexism anymore or about any kind of sexist row. So I think it's it's exactly the, the, what we were talking about earlier about is it necessary sometimes to bring politics to the workplace? You, you sort of said just the act of having a British black lens is in a way political, but is that an important facet of, of what you add to the way we look at the news, for example? So what I would say to use, to use your example or experience then you know we're we're missing out on a on a really important perspective issues of quote unquote objectivity disproportionately affect um uh, people from underrepresented groups normally and they don't have to they absolutely don't have to and but for them not to disproportionately affect people from underrepresented groups management needs to be clever they need to be aware of those issues and they also need to send out clear signals to um, the different people working in the organization of how they actually champion the idea of equal pay. And therefore, they actively embrace the WhatsApp group because that will help them achieve their goal of equal pay. They must want that. You know, they actively embrace the employee network group championing more black and Asian people and minority ethnic people in management. And because that's what they, that's their stated goal. That's what they want. So instead of precluding them from, uh, possible editorial decisions or precluding them from certain places, you know, they should make sure that they have a seat at the table. I'm not saying they should have the only seat at the table, but they should definitely have a seat at the table. And Marcus, just finally, what your book does really well is to sort of show the black British lens on so many different facets of culture, uh, on the arts, on on history, on literature, uh, on architecture. And yet it comes at a time where the government is being accused, certainly, of stoking a, a culture war, of sort of not wanting the National Trust, for example, to sort of talk too much about colonial history, fighting people who want to take statues down. What have you made of, of that argument? Which which argument? Well, sort of the argument that, that, that's flared up post-George Floyd um, about colonial history, how much it should be acknowledged, um, how much the National Trust should do, statues, whether they should remain in place, or, you know, how we mark history. So my view on that is the black historian's perspective, for example, matters, and they need to have a seat at that table. You know, whichever element of culture you're talking about, there needs to be black people, there needs to be trans people, there needs to be women, there needs to be disabled people, you know, you name the group, you know, LGBTQ, people from all over, regional, they need to be represented. So I'm not for one second trying to say that I want everybody to have my perspective, nor would I ask for, as amazing as he is, everyone to have David Olasoga's perspective or to have... Um, I don't know, Kit Duval's perspective, amazing as she is, you know. But what I do want is I want to make sure that those perspectives are heard with equal power and have equal power as the other perspectives in the room, you know. And then we can have a reasoned debate and make sure that it is, when it's the power dynamic between those different ideas that matter and the different people proposing those things. You want equality. And it sounds like so so idealistic, but you basically just want equality. Well, that's probably the perfect place to finish. So, Marcus, thank you so much for that chat. Marcus Ryder and Seleni Henry's book, which is full of essays and thoughts from a rich diversity of talent, is Black British Lives Matter, out now from Faber. You've been listening to Intelligent Squared. I'm Manveen Rana. Thanks so much for listening. What are you doing right now? 
Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Partnerships.